Hello everyone and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host, Tony, and today we're going to look at Star Fox, a 3D space combat on-rail shooter developed by Nintendo and Argonaut Software in 1993 for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. We are going to talk about that game in just a couple minutes, but first, as is usual, we have just a little bit of housekeeping. This is episode number 33, and I am excited to be here. I hope all of you are as well. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, or just drop me a line, talk about prior episodes, future episodes, give comments, suggestions, feedback. I'd love to hear from you, and there are a couple of ways you can reach out. I have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com, and I also have a Twitter account with the handle at classicgamingt. So if anybody feels so inclined, drop me a line. I'd love to hear what you're thinking. For anyone who may be new, welcome. I just want to take a brief moment and go over the anatomy of an episode, because for the most part, every single one of our episodes follows a very similar format and structure. We will always start by talking about the history of the game in question, the historical context, how was the game made, why was the game made, and then we move into a pseudo-review kind of section. And I say pseudo-review because it's not like we assign a star rating or quantitative value, but we do talk about every game from several different perspectives. We talk about the graphics, how does the game look, the sound and music, how does the game sound, the narrative and or a story, if the game has one, playability and controls, and the overall feel. How does the game feel to play today versus when it was released 20, 30, 40 plus years ago? We do all that in order to reach a verdict as far as how well the game holds up today. And to do that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of the top is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. You should still play it today. It hasn't aged at all. It is a true classic. You owe it to yourself to go out of your way and play that game today. Just beyond the Pantheon are our Golden Oldies. These are not quite Pantheon level, but they are still awesome games, and I still highly recommend you play them, especially if you have particular nostalgia for the game or you like the genre in which it exists. You owe it to yourself to play this one. They are still great experiences, just not quite at that Pantheon level. Moving on, we reach our mediocre mentions. These are the games that I can't really recommend. We start getting into the kind of in the middle of the road kind of things. They might have some issues with it, might have not aged quite as well as some other titles. I can't really recommend them to the general population, but you might still have a good time, especially if you like the genre in which the game exists. And finally, beyond our mediocre mentions, we hit the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot recommend anybody play these titles today. They have either aged incredibly poorly, or they may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day, that being Star Fox. Star Fox is a 3D space combat on-rail shooter developed by Nintendo and Argonaut Software back in 1993 for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. Now, before we can talk about Star Fox, we have to look at the evolution of its primary developer, Argonaut Software. 
Argonaut Software was founded back in 1982 by Jez San, an English game programmer, back when he was just 17 years old. San's first experience with computers had come a few years earlier when he received a TRS-80 computer from his father at age 12. The TRS-80, which is short for Tandy Radio Shack, was one of the first mass-produced and marketed machines available on the home computer market. And as soon as San sat down at the keyboard for the first time, he was hooked. San had been interested in games ever since he played his first multi-user dungeon, or MUD, back in the 1970s. Now, MUD, for those who may not know, is effectively the precursor to the modern, massively multiplayer online role-playing game, or MMORPG. Most MUDs were text-based with very limited, if any, display graphics, and most of the early MMORPGs actually evolved from the foundations put in place by MUDs back in the 80s and 90s. Anyway, San knew that he wanted to learn how to program and create games. So he set out to teach himself assembly language, which is a way of programming software that provides more direct access to the underlying computer hardware versus more abstract computer programming languages that utilize more recognizable language and words that then have to be converted into machine-usable code. Assembly language is fast, but it's also incredibly cumbersome to use, as you're literally addressing individual hardware components, memory locations, and CPU registers in your code. For the programming wizards in the 1970s and early to mid-80s, assembly was pretty much the name of the game. So San ended up learning assembly language for a few different microprocessors in around a year, which gave him the base foundational knowledge he would need to be an effective software developer. With that end goal in mind, he founded Argonaut Software in 1982, primarily as a means to get consulting jobs with larger software companies. While his early years were spent working on decidedly non-gaming kinds of software, like security systems, he never gave up on pursuing his dream of developing games. And finally, in 1984, he turned his attention more formally to game development. Now, it would take until 1986 for Sand to have his first real success in the gaming industry, which came with the release of Starglider for the Atari ST and Commodore Amiga computer platforms. So let's talk about Starglider. Starglider was an incredibly advanced, at least for the time, first-person three-dimensional space combat game, where you control a combat ship and have to navigate a harsh world while eliminating an invading alien presence. Its graphics were primitive by today's standards, with most of the enemies, world, and obstacles being rendered purely using wireframes, meaning there were no real solid surfaces, there was no texture mapping, there were no pre-filled colors, this was literally just lines on a screen. Just vectors in a 3D space. Similar in many ways to the Star Wars arcade title released by Atari in the early 80s. But despite that primitiveness, for a 1986 title, it was like seeing the future, and Starglider would go on to sell hundreds of thousands of copies, which means in terms of the early computer game market, this was one of the best-selling games of the time. Critics and players loved it, and the success of the title allowed Argonaut Software to begin expanding and bringing on an actual staff to work on future efforts. With the company beginning to expand, they began to look across the gaming landscape at what other opportunities might be available, and they set their sights on Nintendo, who had recently taken the video game world by storm with their 8-bit console release, the Famicom in Japan, or Nintendo Entertainment System elsewhere. 
Nintendo's 8-bit console was an undeniable success, and as the later 80s approached, Nintendo decided to branch off into the handheld gaming console market, releasing the Nintendo Game Boy back in 1989. San and the Argonaut software team were incredibly enthralled by the Game Boy hardware, and they knew that they wanted to develop something for the system. The only issue was, as a development company, they were still mostly small-time players, and because of that, getting a Game Boy development kit was proving to be difficult. So, similar to fellow UK developer Rare and their efforts with the original Nintendo Entertainment System, Argonaut decided to do something a bit rebellious— they decided to try to reverse-engineer the Game Boy's security system to bypass the protections Nintendo built into the console to prevent unauthorized titles from being played. So let's talk about the Game Boy copyright protection system. It was, in short, a pretty simple process, but it was also built to allow Nintendo to take extreme legal action if it was bypassed. So let's talk about it. When the Game Boy boots up, the Nintendo logo appears on the screen and slowly descends to the middle of the screen, at which point a chip inside the system checks to make sure that the logo is in the right spot and reads Nintendo. If it does, the system assumes you're using a licensed Nintendo game. If not, the system assumes the game is unauthorized and it won't run on the system. That copyright protection scheme seems pretty easy to thwart. Simply create a game that mimics the Nintendo logo load and off you go, right? Well, sure, that could allow your game to run. But by using the word Nintendo without their permission, the company could claim trademark infringement, which in turn would allow them to sue the developer who attempted to bypass the right protection. As I think many of you probably realize, Nintendo is a very litigious company who is protective of their intellectual property. I can guarantee you they would have had definitely sued someone caught bypassing their security if given the opportunity. The Argonaut team, though, came up with an alternative. They loaded their own Argonaut logo on the screen as the game booted up, but before the Game Boy would check to see if the logo actually read Nintendo, they used some modified hardware to trick the system into believing that the word Nintendo was on the screen. This effectively bypassed the security check while at the same time avoiding any trademark usage legal issue. So with that copyright protection bypassed, the team set out to work on creating a demo of a three-dimensional space fighting game, similar in many respects to their Star Glider title that was previously released back in 1986. The biggest difference, though, is that Star Glider was designed for advanced, at least for the time, computer systems. This new 3D demo was running on a pocket-sized device that had significantly less power. The fact that the team had a true 3D demo running on the Game Boy is nothing short of technological wizardry. Jez San was incredibly proud of what his team accomplished on such limited hardware, so he took his demo to the Consumer Electronics Show, or CES, found the highest-ranking Nintendo employee he could find, and showed him the demo. That man ended up being Don James, who today is the Executive Vice President of Operations for Nintendo of America. When James saw the demo, he was in utter shock, both because the demo was an incredibly impressive display of 3D technology on the Game Boy, as well as because this young, small company had ingeniously defeated Nintendo's copyright protection. James brought over a couple of other high-ranking Nintendo employees who also saw the demo and walked away in awe. As CES concluded, San had let his new acquaintances know that his company, Argonaut Software, wanted to work with Nintendo and that their specialty was in creating and designing 3D-based games. 
Before we continue, just a quick word about Nintendo in the 80s and early 90s. At the time, Nintendo focused almost exclusively on two-dimensional games, with literally zero 3D experience in the company. That was mostly a result of the fact that consoles of the time, which Nintendo specialized in, didn't have any efficient way of producing three-dimensional graphics, so they instead worked on what they knew best, two-dimensional experiences. That doesn't mean there wasn't a desire to get into 3D development, though. It's just that they didn't have any expertise to apply to that work. Argonaut Software, however, were experts in 3D development, as demonstrated by both their released games as well as the demo shown to Nintendo at CES. Shortly after CES ended, Argonaut received a request to meet with Nintendo at their headquarters in Japan. Not just a normal business meeting, but one with the president of Nintendo itself, Hiroshi Yamauchi. Of course, Argonaut attended that session, during which Nintendo said that they wanted to work with the studio to develop three games, and at the same time, they wanted Argonaut to teach Nintendo how to use 3D technology themselves. Argonaut agreed to the proposal, and shortly after that meeting, several of the team's top developers were relocated to Nintendo's Japan campus to begin working more closely with the Nintendo team, most prominently Nintendo Entertainment Analysis and Development, or EAD, which was the legendary designer Shigeru Miyamoto's team. Shortly after Argonaut began partnering with Nintendo, they began working on other 3D game demos for currently available Nintendo systems, with one of their first early efforts being a prototype called NES Glider, or NES Glider, which was effectively a port of their Star Glider game to Nintendo's NES console. The demo was impressive, and the fact that the 8-bit NES was displaying 3D visuals was pretty much mind-boggling, and while the Nintendo team loved the demo they were hesitant to move forward with a full game on the system, considering its age and the fact that the Super Famicom, or Super Nintendo Entertainment System, was just on the horizon. Because of that, Nintendo asked Argonaut to port NES Glider to the Super NES, utilizing that new platform's power to hopefully drive an even better 3D experience. So, the team ported the demo over to the Super Nintendo, though performance wasn't exactly stellar, primarily because the Super Nintendo was designed squarely with two-dimensional games in mind. There were no real 3D capabilities available, short of the Mode 7 graphics process that performed various graphical tricks to scale sprite-based graphics into a pseudo-three-dimensional perspective. The Nintendo team saw the SNES demo of, N of NES Glider, which was now being called SNES Glider, as you might imagine, and they were a bit disappointed that performance wasn't better. Jez San told the Nintendo team that SNES Glider represented the absolute best 3D performance the Super Nintendo would be capable of, and that if Nintendo wanted something better, they should let Argonaut design a brand new 3D chip. Surprisingly, Nintendo turned to the Argonaut team and said, okay, do it. So the team went off and started to develop Mario. No, this wasn't a brand new game set in the Mushroom Kingdom. Instead, the Mario would be a brand new chip to enhance the 3D capabilities of the Super Nintendo Entertainment System, with Mario being an acronym for Mathematical Argonaut Rotation and Input Output. While I can't deny the cool factor that they were able to figure out a way to reuse their famed mascot's name for an overly long acronym, it didn't exactly roll off the tongue, so it didn't take long before that chip would be rechristened as the Super FX chip. So let's talk about the Super Nintendo system capabilities and how the Super FX chip would work within that system. The Super Nintendo 
was built around a 16-bit central processing unit, or CPU, with a maximum potential speed of just 3.58 megahertz. Fairly standard for consoles of the time, but definitely not a powerhouse for three-dimensional processing. But the engineers that designed the Super Nintendo were pretty smart. They designed the system so that the base chips, memory, CPU, and other components could be augmented by additional specialty hardware that developers could include as part of a game cartridge's circuit board. There were even specific pins on the cartridge connector slot inside the Super Nintendo that were reserved exclusively for that kind of additional hardware integration. So, when the time came to try to enhance the 3D capabilities of the system, the team at Argonaut brought in several computer system engineers that they had worked with previously to sit down and design a brand new 3D chip that could be included with any game that required some extra oomph in processing power. The new chip would be clocked at 21.4 MHz, approximately six times faster than the base Super Nintendo CPU. Initial claims made by SAN were that their design would be able to process 3D graphics approximately 10 times faster than the standard Super Nintendo configuration. In reality, though, the new chip would speed things up by nearly 40 times the baseline capability of the system. There was a common joke going around around that time where people basically said, well, the Super Nintendo is just the box that the cartridge sits in and plays the game because effectively the Super Nintendo was much less powerful than what the Super FX chip was. Beyond being a literal game changer for Nintendo, the Super FX chip would have one other claim to fame. It was the very first graphics processing unit or GPU to be created in the gaming industry and there are actually patents that back up that claim. With the Super FX chip capabilities finalized, the team began working with Nintendo to create a full-fledged game to utilize that new three-dimensional processing power, drawing on the technical prowess of the Argonaut team and the design expertise of Nintendo's highest-profile creator, Shigeru Miyamoto. That joint game would eventually become Star Fox. Developing Star Fox was a truly collaborative affair with the Argonaut team being responsible for actually coding the title and handling all of the technical aspects of the game's creation, such as the 3D game engine and Super FX chip integration, while Nintendo, under Miyamoto's direction, would be responsible for the game's design, including the overall storyline, characters, mission structure, enemies, and the overarching gameplay mechanics. Working this closely with Nintendo, and specifically Miyamoto, was a completely unique experience for the Argonaut team, and in several interviews, they explained what it was like working with the legendary designer. On prior episodes, we have talked a little bit about the general design process that many game studios utilize, where prior to beginning development, the team would get together and hash out an overarching design document depicting all of the different elements of the game being developed, effectively providing a roadmap for the development team to follow while creating the game. Apparently, though, that's not quite how Miyamoto works. Instead, he's very big on iterating on a game's design during development, trying things out, seeing what works and what doesn't, and then picking out the best parts to include in the final game. He's not afraid to throw out huge pieces of a game if it turns out that the end result isn't as fun as what his expectations were, which can sometimes wreak havoc on a development team and drive additional rework as new additions are made, sometimes even late into a game's development process. Nintendo's team was totally used to Miyamoto's way of working. The Argonaut team was not, though from what I could gather, any frustration with the overall process was relatively minimal. I mean, come on. 
you're working with Miyamoto. And the Argonaut team recognized the opportunity they had, so they paid close attention to the way the Nintendo team operated, treating the whole process as an educational experience that they could utilize themselves for future development work. Speaking of the act of designing the overall game, Miyamoto and the rest of the Nintendo creative team looked to various sources of inspiration while creating the characters and story elements of the title. One question you might be wondering about is why Star Fox characters were all anthropomorphic animals as opposed to more traditional human and alien beings. The answer to that one is simply that Miyamoto wasn't interested in telling a traditional sci-fi story. He wanted to do something more creative and a bit more unique. The selection of which animals to use for the game's main characters, as well as various elements of the game's levels, were driven by Japanese culture and folklore, while the R-Wing spaceship design, the main vehicle used by Fox McCloud and his team of wingmen, was inspired directly by the X-Wing design of Star Wars fame. Miyamoto and the Nintendo team continued to work the overall game design, while the Argonaut team handled the technical aspects of coding and building the framework within which Miyamoto's design would reside, until eventually Star Fox was ready to be shown to the public, with its official debut occurring at the Las Vegas Consumer Electronics Show in January of 1993, and a full release occurring in February of 1993 in Japan, with the North American release coming one month later in March. Bolstered by a $15 million advertising budget, Star Fox would immediately take the gaming world by storm, garnering significant praise amongst both the critical and gaming community. Almost everyone who experienced the game when it was released praised the game's 3D visuals, with many going on to say that the game felt more like a virtual reality experience as opposed to a more traditional console game. For what it's worth, that's actually pretty darn accurate. Virtual reality visuals of the time looked very similar to Star Fox graphics, with polygonal graphics and flat shaded surfaces. I still remember experiencing VR in arcades of the time. It was nothing like what we have today, but for the time, it absolutely blew my mind. And I think I've talked about this before, but the way it worked is you would literally go into an arcade, and they would have these VR sort of headsets, but they were more like full shoulder, head, body contraption kind of things, hanging off of cranes, you would go under this thing, they would lower it onto your head, and you would be immersed in a, a screen in front of you. You'd basically be in a closed environment. And that was what VR was back in the 90s. And the way it worked was inside, it wasn't like you had incredible graphics or, or really high-quality 3D visuals. It was all just flat-shaded polygons. But regardless, you were in the game, it felt like the future. Star Fox looked very much like what you would see in VR experiences in arcades of the time. That being said, and virtual reality similarities aside, Star Fox would become a commercial success, with over 1.7 million units being sold in its first month of release, which for the time represented the fastest-selling video game launch in North America. Over the years that followed, Star Fox would continue to sell well, eventually selling over 4 million units by 1998. And the game would quickly earn its place on numerous best games of all time lists, as well as spawning a successful game franchise with characters that continue to make appearances in Nintendo's titles even today. The work that Argonaut did on the title was recognized by Nintendo, with several of Argonaut's team members securing full-time employment with Nintendo following Star Fox's release. Argonaut itself would continue to work with Nintendo for years to come, though the relationship between the two companies was not without friction. 
Jez San, Argonaut's founder, recalls that while the relationship allowed Argonaut to grow, it was also stifling at times as part of the agreement required Nintendo exclusivity for the company's games. In this way, Nintendo had pretty much direct control over what the company would be able to work on, which led to internal conflict and missed opportunities. Further impacting that relationship were several efforts that Argonaut worked on which would ultimately be overlooked or downright rejected by Nintendo. As an example, Argonaut had worked on and completed a sequel to the original Star Fox for the Super Nintendo, but because Nintendo had already shifted its focus to the Nintendo 64, the game ended up not being officially released, though it was eventually included on the Super Nintendo Classic system that was released several years ago. Other Argonaut innovations ended up being passed over by Nintendo as well, such as an early virtual reality headset prototype called the Supervisor that included head tracking, full-color visuals, and actual 3D texture-mapped polygons. Nintendo ultimately shut that prototype down, eventually releasing the Virtual Boy instead, which had literally none of these features. The final nail in the coffin of the Nintendo-Argonaut relationship, though, came when Argonaut proposed an idea for a brand new 3D platforming game, utilizing Yoshi as a main character and including gameplay mechanics and visuals that had never been created before. Argonaut created a prototype, but Nintendo, being very protective of their intellectual property, refused to let an outside company, so to speak, develop a title with their characters. Shortly after that decision, the Argonaut-Nintendo partnership effectively ended, with Argonaut going on to turn their prototype 3D platforming game into what would become Croc, Legend of the Gabos, while Nintendo took Argonaut's idea for a 3D platforming game and created their own variation of the title, which would eventually become the Nintendo 64 classic, Super Mario 64. It is undeniably unfortunate that Argonaut and Nintendo's partnership ended with a degree of negative feelings. But though the ending of the story wasn't an entirely happy ending, that doesn't take away from the fact that Argonaut's and Nintendo's joint efforts produced an experience in Star Fox that would revolutionize the gaming world, both from a gameplay and technological perspective. As one of the earliest true 3D games available on a home console, it presented itself as a technological marvel. But beyond the technology, Nintendo's most creative designers instilled the game with a design that would appeal to gamers of all ages and remain relevant in gaming culture through to the present day. Regardless of how the relationship ended, Argonaut and Nintendo formed a powerhouse partnership whose greatness, legacy, and overall impact cannot be questioned. We are now going to talk about what it feels like to play Star Fox many, many years after its original release, a good 30 years after release. So just to refresh everybody's memory, Star Fox is a 3D space combat on-rail shooter that was released back in 1993 for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. So let's talk about what it means to be a 3D space combat on-rail shooter, because there are a lot of different components to that phrase. So let's start by talking about the on-rails aspect. With a game that is on-rails, what that basically means is that you 
don't have complete control over your navigation. You can sometimes move a little bit left, right, or up or down, but you don't really control forward progress. Your game is going to move forward regardless of what you do, which is why it's considered an on-rails game. Effectively, it's like you're on a roller coaster ride, and you're just moving forward no matter what you do. You might be able to shift your weight left or right, or you might be able to move your head around, but at the end of the day, you are moving forward regardless of what you do. So, from an on-rails perspective, that basically means that forward motion is continuous. You have no opportunity to really change that other than maybe slowing down a little bit by hitting your decelerators or by firing your boosters and moving a bit quicker. So you can sometimes affect the speed with which you're moving forward, but you cannot change the fact that pretty much constantly you are moving forward. So that's what it means to be on rails from a gaming perspective. So let's talk about the whole concept of 3D space combat. Space combat is pretty self-explanatory. You are in a spaceship and you are flying around and you are shooting things and you are trying to avoid getting shot yourself. The three-dimensional aspect of this game is pretty interesting. So all of the visuals in Star Fox were designed using three-dimensional flat shaded polygons. Literally every object in the game world were composed of smaller shapes, and those smaller shapes would be combined together to create the individual either spaceships or buildings or enemies, whatever the case might be. Everything was composed of smaller polygons. Those polygons were stitched together to create whatever object the designers were trying to create. Now, we've seen other games before that have utilized a degree of polygonal graphics, specifically when we talked about Out of This World, and even Heart of the Alien to a degree. A lot of the characters were designed using polygons, but then the background images were all literally images. They would just be raster graphics that were composed of pixels of varying colors, and then the actual foreground objects like the characters were polygonal. Star Fox was entirely different. Everything in the game world was polygonal, except for the actual images of the various character portraits that would appear when individuals were chatting, when you would be chatting with either your teammates or other people in the game. Those were not polygons. Those were just pictures, effectively, of your character. But everything else in the game world was truly three-dimensional polygon-based, which is why Star Fox was such a revolutionary title from a technological perspective back in 1993. So let's talk about the overall structure of the game. Star Fox is organized around three distinct paths or levels, each of which contains multiple stages that need to be beaten in order to progress through the game. And each level, so there are three, there's level one, level two, level three. Each level represents a different difficulty level, with level one being the easiest path and level three being the hardest path. At the beginning of your playthrough, you get to pick which level you want to play through, and then you begin the game. Now, I want to mention something here, and I think this is really important. Even though each level represents a different difficulty level, it's not like you're playing the same stages in every single level. Each separate difficulty path has its own unique stages, and to truly experience everything the game has to offer, you have to play through it at least three times. And the interesting thing is that every time you play through it, it is a different experience. And I want to relay just an anecdotal experience that I had when I was a kid, because I loved Star Fox as a kid. I got it when it first came out. So 1993, I was right around 12 when the game came out. I loved it. I got it. I thought this was an amazing game. I couldn't believe the graphics that I was seeing. And when I would play the game, 
I would do what I think a lot of people probably did. I would pick level one and I would just play through the game and I would, I would beat the game. So I did beat the game on level one, which just to remind everybody is the easiest level. And I saw the other levels in the game. I saw level two, I saw level three. And every now and then I would pick one of those and I would get maybe like two or three stages in, maybe, uh, probably not even that far. And I would think to myself, holy cow, this thing is really hard. Why would anybody want to play the game like this? Uh, If I can beat the game going down this middle path, I'll just keep picking the middle path. And for what it's worth, that's exactly what I did. I beat the game multiple times, but I would always play level one. I thought, well, geez, anybody who picks level two or three, they they must not be really thinking through things the right way, because why would you put yourself through that much hurt and torture just to beat the game when you have a perfectly viable experience in front of you, a perfectly viable path to Venom, which is the last stage? Just go right up the middle. Go pick level one. Why pick level two or level three? I now understand as as an adult that those were really entirely different experiences, and I have a much greater appreciation for how the difficulty would shift depending on what level you would choose. So for this podcast episode, I did in fact play the entire game, all three levels, and boy, do I have some opinions on how uh, how some of those get pretty darn difficult. We'll talk about that in a little bit. So to continue talking about the overall structure of the game, when you play the game, you start out with only three lives and no continues, though you do earn additional lives by shooting special objects in the game world, and you can earn additional continues when you accumulate score totals of 10,000, 30,000, and 50,000 points. I'm assuming that technically the game would give you an extra continue at 70,000 points, but because of the number of stages in any of the levels, I don't think it's actually possible to get 70,000 points. Well, I guess it would be possible technically, but by the time you get that, you will have beaten the game anyway, so an extra continue really isn't going to do a whole heck of a lot. I mentioned you can get extra lives in the game world. There are several levels, not every level, at least not that I saw, but there are several levels where there are these, this kind of triangular shape or objects arranged in a triangular shape where if you hit all three and once you hit the first one, they start spinning. So then you have to hit the second and the third, which can be a little bit tricky to do as you're trying to fly through the space kind of scenes, because remember you're on rails, you're moving forward constantly. You don't really have too much control over that forward momentum. So if you hit all three of those as they're spinning, an extra life will appear in the center of the object. You fly through the extra life and you get the extra life. Those become really important, by the way, on the harder difficulty levels. Now, as you're working your way through each level, there are various power-ups that are strewn about, including a double blaster power-up that has two different stages of power, a shield that turns your spaceship into a wireframe with increased defensive capabilities for a short time, and bombs that can be used to eliminate all enemies on your current screen. And each level culminates in a boss fight. Oftentimes, each boss fight will be a progressive kind of experience where certain hotspots become available to be shot as you deplete the boss's hit points. So the way that bosses work in this game is oftentimes you're going to be presented with a boss and it looks relatively simple. It might have a single spot that's highlighted that is just obvious you must shoot it. So you shoot it and then the boss transforms somehow. Maybe it loses that part of it, and then other objects or other areas on the body become hittable, or it changes its attack patterns or whatever. And the really cool thing about this is because, like we talked about, each of the bosses, each of the objects in the game are made up of all of these individual polygons. So when you destroy individual elements or individual segments of the boss, and the game detaches those segments from the boss, 
the boss still stays structurally sound. It's just that the part that you fired off will fall off off to the side. And it's not like it's they're fully destructible bosses. It's not like you're controlling the destruction. It's all pre-programmed in the game as far as how the boss will detach from itself when you reach certain levels of damage and things like that. But I still thought it was awesome that the 3D models in the game made it pretty darn simple from a programming standpoint to basically say, detach this point or detach this vertice from the boss. And then assuming that they programmed in some physics or whatever other way they used to animate that destruction, that piece of the boss would fall off and you would still be left with the rest of the boss to defeat. So I just found that interesting just based on the design and how they did that from a three-dimensional perspective. So also, as you're playing the game, it's not like you're just solo playing the game, though this is not a multiplayer experience, but you do have a team of additional computer-controlled characters to help you with your journey. Most of the time, those characters are pretty much just there for story flavor or to introduce additional difficulty into certain parts of the levels, because oftentimes they're going to be chased by enemies requiring that you save them in order to prevent their death. And yes, your companions can die. If they get shot down, you lose them for the rest of your current playthrough. In practice, I didn't really notice it uh, dramatically impacting the difficulty, but it does reduce the overall dialogue and interactions that occur between you and your wingmen. And some of that dialogue can be honestly a little bit irritating, especially when they're constantly getting attacked by enemies and you got to constantly save them. It can get a little irritating at times, or at least a little repetitive, I guess is a better way to put it. Maybe irritating is too strong a word, but it does get a little repetitive, especially as you yourself are trying to avoid obstacles and fire and shoot down enemy craft and try yourself not to die. And you always have to go off and save Slippy. Well, I got to tell you, Slippy, maybe you should start being a better pilot. Anyway, that aside, I do want to take a look at what the back of the box says, because as you all know, I love looking at the back of the box. I think that it is really interesting to see how development teams and marketing teams truly try to sell you on purchasing something, because back in the 80s and 90s, we didn't always have information at our fingertips to be able to say and help us make an informed buying decision as far as whether a game was considered good or not. A lot of times you're browsing the store, you see a cool looking box on the shelf, you turn it over, you read the back of the box and you think, well, hey, that sounds like fun, so I'm going to buy it. It's not like we had YouTube and gameplay videos to look at. We did have magazines at the time, of course, but not all the time. It's not like it was just pervasive availability of information. So I always like looking at the back of the box to see how these teams tried to sell you on their games. So for Star Fox, the back of the box says, Lead the Star Fox team to victory. In the distant Lilat star system, imagine yourself at the controls of a futuristic heavily armed space fighter, R-Ring. Lead the counterattack on an invasion force of hundreds of alien tanks, fighter ships, laser gun emplacements, and super battleships. Maneuver at warp speed through fog-enshrouded canyons, dense asteroid belts, and waves of the enemy's best defense. You must use skill and cunning to bring the fight to the enemy's home planet Venom and smash the core brain for victory. The Super FX microchip is on board for fluid game control and special effects previously unavailable in home video games. The action explodes from all directions in realistic, real-time, three dimensions. 
And then of course there are some pictures on the back of the box as well as a really cool looking super FX badge with the letters kind of in goldish text, which I thought looked really, really cool. So if I saw Star Fox in a store and I didn't know about it in advance, that box probably would have sold me on it. It sounded pretty awesome. And the fact that it had three-dimensional visuals and once again, looked like a virtual reality experience that I would have otherwise seen in an arcade, that pretty much would have sealed the deal for me. We're now going to move on and talk about the more specific aspects of the game. And we're going to start by talking about the graphics. By today's standards, the 3D flat shaded polygonal graphics are primitive. But for 1993, the visuals were legitimately shocking. Nobody had seen anything like this before outside of arcade-based massive virtual reality machines. While the graphics might be quaint when looking at them through today's lens, that doesn't mean they're not effective, as I believe the graphics and overall style of the game still hold up today. All objects and characters in the game world are designed well, and I thought the enemy designs in particular, especially the boss machines, were inventive. Animations were similarly detailed and smooth, except when they weren't. And one of my biggest critiques from a visual presentation perspective is that the frame rate can vary wildly as you play the game. Now, I recognize that the Super Nintendo was not a three-dimensional powerhouse system, and the fact that the game ran at all is nothing short of amazing. But I would be remiss if I didn't at least mention the frame rate inconsistencies, which did serve to reduce the overall quality of the experience. The Super FX chip definitely made the Super Nintendo work better than it would have, but it still just was not a consistent, stable frame rate. That said, I absolutely think that the good outweighs the bad from a graphics perspective. Moving on to the sound and music, the Star Fox soundtrack is incredibly varied with an eclectic mix of orchestral-style tracks, tension-filled boss themes, and even jazzy techno pieces. I honestly didn't even remember the variety of music that was in the game from when I had played it as a kid. When I just replayed it recently for this podcast, I was blown away by the sheer variety of the musical tracks in the game. It is super varied, but it also works just really well with the rest of the game. Some of the music has even transcended the game to simply become a part of gaming culture, while other pieces remain specific to Star Fox, but still ridiculously fun to listen to. I would honestly put this soundtrack up against other Top Flight 16-bit soundtracks. It's that good. Sound effects, similarly, sounded great, with every blaster shot and ship explosion crisp and well-designed. I also loved the dialogue for each of the characters. And for those who may not know, the game does sort of kind of have voice acting to a degree, with each character being represented by a distinct voice. The language that each character speaks can best be described as gibberish, but I thought the nonsense word dialogue was charming and still holds up today. And there was some actual voice acting. You could actually tell some of the words, like at the beginning of a mission. It goes like, good luck, but not really like that. Much more warbly, so to speak, than that. But there were some words you could actually make out. But most of the characters, as they spoke to each other, were kind of like, blah, 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 blah which honestly I found charming. I just thought it was kind of cool. And even as a kid, I thought it was interesting and cool just to hear what resembled a voice in a cartridge game. As an adult, I just thought it, it was kind of funny. 
And uh, it just worked with the overall experience, especially because when you consider that you're controlling a bunch of animals, you wouldn't necessarily expect that they're all speaking your language of choice, whether that's English, Japanese, or whatever else you might speak. So I loved it. I loved the music. Overall, I loved the auditory experience for the game. Moving on to the narrative and story, you play as Fox McCloud, the leader of an elite space fighter squadron known as Star Fox. One day, you're called upon by leaders of the Lilat space system to defend an attack by Andros, an evil scientist who has declared war on the peace-loving inhabitants of the galaxy, dispatching a large army of enemy forces to take over the planetary system. You and your team, which is comprised of an obnoxious bird named Falco Lombardi, a fun-loving toad named Slippy Toad, and a veteran rabbit named Peppy Hare, have to pilot your R-wings and eliminate the enemy threat, eventually fighting Andros on his home world and restoring peace to the galaxy. And I've got to say, the story worked for me. I thought it was just the right balance of backstory and lore while still giving motivation for why you're doing what you're doing. I also really enjoyed the mission briefings in between stages, which served to further give purpose to your mission and also provided some additional explanation as to what was going on in the game world. Overall, I have no complaints here. The story was perfect for the experience that the game was attempting to deliver. Moving on to the playability and controls, the controls follow a pretty standard space combat kind of situation or scenario. Your D-pad controls the movement and orientation of your ship, and your controller buttons allow you to shoot, fire bombs, and both slow down and accelerate your ship, albeit on a cooldown timer. You also have your shoulder buttons, which allow you to barrel roll or turn your ship on its side if you're trying to maneuver through some particularly tricky passageways or tunnels that you may have to avoid some of the things off to the side. So overall, the controls feel fairly standard. Pressing up goes down, down goes up, similar kind of or very traditional flight sim kinds of controls. And as you play the game, the main goal is to navigate through each stage, avoiding environmental obstacles while trying to eliminate as many enemies as possible, all while avoiding taking damage from the enemy forces that you're constantly fighting. The controls here all felt great. And even though a digital control pad isn't nearly as precise as controlling a ship with a joystick or analog stick, at least from a flight simulator or space simulator perspective, it still worked absolutely fine for this particular game. And navigating each environment was fairly straightforward, though I will say that the harder levels did have some really devious designs that made it very difficult to navigate without taking significant damage. You definitely need to learn the levels in order to be successful. This is not a pick up and beat in an evening kind of experience, even though the game itself can technically be beaten in less than an hour. Actually, you know what? I take that back. The easiest difficulty course, level one, can probably be beaten relatively quickly with only limited game experience. And like I was saying earlier, that was the level that I played primarily when I was a child or when I was a, a younger person. And it was not too bad. Once you get used to the controls, you can pretty much fly through level one without significant difficulty. But 
the game ramps up difficulty dramatically when you move into level two, and especially in level three, where you face a truly challenging set of stages. To experience everything in the game, you will have to put in some effort and practice. And you know, we probably should talk, I haven't talked too much about specific stages and levels in the game. I mean, we talked about the levels from a difficulty perspective, but we haven't talked about the different types of stages. And my intent is not to go through every single stage that you'll encounter, but there are a variety of stages that all follow a similar kind of structure or framework. So let's talk about the basic kinds of stages that you're going to encounter in the game, regardless of what difficulty level you pick. So one of the types of stages is the planet kind of stage. And on planets, it's exactly what it sounds like. You're on the surface of some world, you're navigating throughout the stage, you have enemies to defeat, you might have gates to fly through, you might have to avoid certain obstacles. In some of the later levels or the later stages, you have objects that literally fall out of the sky to try to hit you as you're trying to fly through this space. So it's pretty much the traditional kind of what you would expect on a planetary kind of surface. And like we said before, every single level ends in some sort of boss fight. So those are, I would say there's probably 60-ish, 65% of the game are planetary levels. The other kind of level, or one of the other kind of levels you have are space Based levels. And in space, you have the option. Sometimes you have to navigate an asteroid field. Sometimes you're just in more of a space combat kind of scenario, typical to what you might see in a Star Wars space simulator like X-Wing versus TIE Fighter or something like that, albeit much simpler from a control perspective. So those are the kind of stages where it's a little bit more freeform, I'll say, than the planetary surface in that a lot of times you're not necessarily avoiding a ton of buildings or obstacles from that perspective. Though I will say that the asteroid fields, there are quite a number of debris or, or debris-like items that you will have to avoid. And some of the space levels do in fact have structures or at least structural elements that you will have to avoid getting hit by. Otherwise you'll use or lose significant amounts of damage. Uh, there's a pretty good chunk of space levels as well. There are a couple of secret levels in the game. Uh, there's a black hole that you can take and there's like a warp zone kind of thing that you can warp through. I didn't actually seek them out during the playthrough that I was doing for this particular episode of the podcast. I do recall doing them when I was a kid, or at least I, I remember the black hole from when I was a kid, which kind of warps you around and it's a special level in and of itself. I did not go after the secret levels for this particular playthrough, but I do want to make sure everybody has awareness that there are a couple of secret levels in the game. So I did just want to go real quickly. I mean, there's that's pretty much the extent of the different types of stages that you'll encounter. It's really going to be either planet or space. The final level, though, for regardless of what level you play through, is notable because it's kind of a multi-stage affair where you start in space and you have a space level, which is above the planet Venom, which is the final area of the game that you're trying to get to Andros and save the galaxy. So you start up in a space level. It is its own specific stage. So once you beat that stage, you then go down to the planet surface. You go through that effectively is its own stage as well. You go through Venom. You get to the boss of, of whatever one of those three, depending on what difficulty level you pick on the planetary surface of Venom. And then you go into an interior kind of section, which 
is sort of kind of its own stage, although it kind of flows directly from the prior planetary surface level on Venom. So that's why I say it's a multi-stage kind of thing, because on the game map, when you pick the stage or when you navigate to the stage in whatever level you've chosen, it only shows Venom as a planet. But in reality, for each of the difficulty levels, it really is a three-stage kind of thing. It's the space battle, the planet surface, and then the interior of the building on top or on the planet surface of Venom, which then leads you directly into the final boss battle. So I did just want to mention that really quickly. Uh, a couple of other items that I would like to call attention to specifically around the playability and controls for the game. I really enjoyed the power-up system for your blasters. Getting a single set of double blasters is good, but the plasma-like blasters that you get if you find a second blaster power-up is super fun and makes the whole game dramatically easier. Now, you do lose any power-ups that you might have if you die, so you have to be pretty proficient in the game to hold on to it for any length of time. But if you do develop your skills enough, the Plasma Blaster pretty much melts enemies and bosses alike. So I really enjoy the Plasma Blasters. Hold on to that for dear life whenever you can get it, because it is definitely one of those game-changing elements, and it just makes you feel really powerful. Now, one of the things I do want to mention here as well is that you can actually damage the wing of your ship or even, well, I guess you could damage both wings of your ship technically. But if you had double blasters and you damaged the wing of your ship enough, you will lose the ability to use double blasters. And if you get the double blaster power up again, all it does is restore your wing on your ship. So you actually kind of have to get two sets of double blasters before you can start working your power up again. That's a little bit irritating. If it happens, because you will nick your wing every now and then as you're trying to navigate through some of the levels. Not a big deal, but something to call attention to. And there was one cool mechanic that I didn't even realize existed until I was playing. I think it was I had beaten level one. I had beaten level two. So I'd beaten the first two difficulties and I was playing the third difficulty. And I didn't even realize that this particular mechanic existed. You can barrel roll. So I knew about barrel rolling, which is double tapping the shoulder button on your controller. What I didn't realize is that doing that, doing a barrel roll, can actually deflect plasma blasts that are fired at you. This becomes a very useful skill in certain levels where you get bombarded by highly damaging enemy fire left and right. There, In particular, there is... Uh, an asteroid level on level three within that final difficulty or that hardest difficulty where you get peppered by these plasma bolts continuously and barrel rolling really does help. There are also some bosses that use a lot of those plasma bombs or plasma uh, balls that they shoot at you for lack of a better term using the barrel roll. There definitely helps. So while the overall game plays great. I do have to call attention to the difficulty and design of a couple aspects of the game, which I do believe serves to detract from the overall experience. Now, I want to note all of these examples come from level three, which, like we were talking about, is the hardest path through the game. Level one and level two, I think, are pretty darn well balanced. Level one is nice for a beginner to the game. It is not too challenging. It's kind of that sweet spot of, of just pure fun. Once you get a little bit proficient with the controls, level one, you're going to have fun with. Level two is a challenge, but it's not an insurmountable challenge. It's one of those things where you put in a little bit of time, you put in a little bit of effort, you learn the game, you learn the levels, you learn the enemy layouts and when the enemies appear on the screen, because for the most part, if not completely, 
all of the levels are predetermined. There's not a whole heck of a lot of random elements as far as enemies popping up. So once you learn the level, you're going to do okay. And level two is one of those things where if you're up for a challenge, but you don't want to experience intense frustration, play level two, that's probably a good choice. Level three is much more difficult. So let's talk about level three and a couple of the aspects within that particular level that I thought eh, could have been done a little bit differently. So the boss for the Fortuna planet, which is the third stage of level three, is incredibly irritating to defeat unless you have the plasma blasters, which can literally destroy the boss in seconds. And the way this boss works, it's kind of like this big bird kind of boss, and it can be shot on its necks. It has two heads, so you can shoot its necks and you can shoot its tail. And if you shoot it enough, you'll be able to damage the rest of its body and actually do some damage to the overall boss structure. If you don't have plasma blasters, you're going to have to dodge and fire at this thing forever. And it is incredibly difficult to avoid some of its attacks when it gets really close to you on the screen. There's You pretty much have to be just in one specific spot of the y-axis in order to avoid the attacks. Otherwise, you're going to get hit, and it's just not all that fun. That being said, with the plasma blasters, you can literally destroy it. Just sit there, shoot straight ahead. It will be it will basically be destroyed. Um, you don't even have to move your ship, really, which I don't know. That kind of design, a little, little off for me because one weapon should not completely trivialize something. There should be balance there. And for that particular boss, I just don't think it was designed all that well. It is a little bit frustrating, but the worst boss in the entire game by far is the Great Commander, which is a large multi-part ship that appears in the space portion of the final stage of level three. So that's the space above the planet Venom in level three. This issue with the boss, it wasn't difficult per se. It's not like it's an insanely mechanics-driven fight that you have to dodge a ton of things. It's not hard from that perspective. It's really just designed very badly. The way the fight works is that you have to blow up several shootable panels on each side of the ship's hull, and the game pushes you forward on various strafing runs. So you go through a strafing run, you try to shoot these panels, the game kind of pulls you back, it swings you back around, and you go back on another strafing run. Okay, that's fine. The problem here is that the shootable panels activate and deactivate, so they're not always available to be shot or blown up. And if you're actually trying to fire at them, Good luck, because the hitbox can best be described as just simply broken. Literally, it is nearly impossible to hit the panels with your blasters. Your only alternative is to utilize bombs, but you have to time your shots incredibly well or you'll end up blowing up nothing and your bombs are a limited resource. The only other alternative, which is not a good one, really, is to crash your ship into the panels to destroy them, which, needless to say, is not a great option. That boss I really disliked. It was just, it like I said, it wasn't difficult. It was just tedious, and it was designed in such a way that it almost felt like the hit detection or the collisions for those particular panels was just broken. It just felt like, I felt like I was shooting them multiple times, and they would not get destroyed. So there's something wrong with that boss. I'm telling you, if you play the game, if you play that fight, you got to let me know because there is something broken with that boss. Anyway, other than those couple of examples, I think the game plays well and is mostly fair as it relates to difficulty and overall playability, though I will say the frame rate can sometimes wreak havoc with certain sections of a playthrough. 
It is a testament to the rest of the experience, though, that even with those frame rate dips, the game remains a positive experience. So overall, how did it feel to play the game? I will say that Star Fox is a game that holds a lot of nostalgia for me. And I know sometimes returning to something that holds nostalgia for you can be a disappointing experience. Luckily, that did not happen with Star Fox. It remains a fun quality experience even today. Now, that's not to say that there isn't some friction here. And the game is decidedly an older school kind of experience that will challenge players, especially if trying to play without save states or other assist kinds of functions prevalent in today's gaming titles. If you put the time in, though, I bet you'll have a good time, even if you've never played the game before. It is simply a fun game to play. So, overall, what is our verdict? I have to start by saying Star Fox as a game is not a perfect experience. It does have some frustrations, it has some control issues, and it certainly has some display problems, most prominently the unstable frame rate. Despite all of that, though, I truly believe this is a game that everyone should play. It's both an important title in gaming history as well as a timeless title that remains fun and playable today. It may not control as well as a modern title, or be quite as smooth as what we're used to today, but that doesn't mean the game itself isn't a classic that deserves its spot on many gamers' best games of all time lists. Therefore, for me, Star Fox deserves to be inducted into our pantheon of classic gaming. It is something everyone should play at least once in their life, and if you don't feel like being particularly challenged, just play level one, beat the game, and have a good time doing it. If you do want to devote some time to the experience, though, you'll find a game that ramps up the difficulty while, for the most part, not being unfair about it, and there's a surprising amount of content and replayability here. Star Fox is a classic, and is an obvious choice for inclusion in our pantheon of classic gaming. was our episode on Star Fox. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, give advice, comments, suggestions, feedback, talk about classic gaming or technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a couple of ways you can reach out. I do have a Twitter account with the handle at ClassicGamingT. I also have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. So feel free to drop me a line. I am definitely interested in hearing what you think. Before we sign off for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is going to be focused on Earthworm Jim. So feel free to write in and let me know what you think, either positive or negative, about that particular title. At the same time, I recognize that this podcast lives pretty much wherever podcasts live. So it would be great if you feel so inclined to leave a review on your podcast service of choice. This is not about just harvesting a bunch of reviews or getting five-star counts or anything like that. No, this is really all about trying to make the best possible podcast that I can. And the only way to do that is to get feedback from the community to make sure that we're delivering the best possible content that you all want to listen to. I am in this for the long haul. We are continuously growing. We're continuously developing the community. I want to continue to make this the best possible podcast that it can possibly be with a lot of possibility. 
That's a lot of peas. Anyway, we'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on Earthworm Jim. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>